Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. While they were traveling, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary, who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. The word of the Lord. Uh, my name is Darian Lockett. I'm a member here of the church, and I apologize beforehand. The sermon is a bit autobiographical, so uh, uh, you're supposed to laugh at that, actually. Um, so, uh, so I have one question as we begin thinking about this passage in Luke 10, this, uh, this moment when two sisters uh, have very different reactions so my first question to you as we think about this passage is, who does the dishes in your house? Who does the dishes? Think about that very carefully, all right? So I already see families looking at each other. Now, what I don't mean is this. I do not mean who is told to do the dishes in the house. So now you have to revise what you're thinking. Nor do I mean on whose chore list is the word dishes written. That's also not what I mean. Here's what I mean. I mean, who does the dishes in your house? The person who cannot stand to have dishes sitting in the sink overnight. Who is that person in your house? I might say, who in your house is a slave to the dishes? Now, now my whole family is looking right at me because they know exactly who in this household is a slave to dishes. In fact, I'm remembering not too many months ago a moment in my home where lots of people were over at our house. It was Christmas time. People were enjoying themselves. We had just had a meal, and there were a lot of dishes in the sink. So it, it was bothering me. So I left the game that was going on at the dinner table and just a few feet uh, away started doing the dishes. And while I was doing them, I was looking over thinking, nobody's helping me. They, they, they see me over here, surely. So I would clank a dish a little louder, see if anybody saw, nobody sees me. They're laughing and having a good, they're even looking at me and then looking back at their, they're having a good time. And the whole time I was sitting there thinking, I, I'm such a martyr. I'm, I'm, I love my family so much that I'm going to clean the dishes while they're having fun. So I'm the slave in the family to doing dishes. Uh, I, you know, in this funny moment, maybe you can, you know, put yourself there. Maybe it's not the dishes. Maybe it's vacuuming. Maybe it's something else. But, uh, but, but in this moment, I find myself overwhelmed by the monster of self-pity. Why don't they see what I'm doing? Why don't they help me? Why don't they say, thanks, thanks, Dad. Thanks, Dad, for doing the dishes. In fact, one of my kids that I won't, you know, not tell you who he was, uh, but uh, actually said one time, well, yeah, we leave the dishes in the sink and we don't do them because we know Dad's going to do them eventually. <laughs> that really made me feel bad when they said that. So I told you a little autobiography here. But what I want to talk about here is the idea of self-pity. 
that moment where you feel yourself alone, feel yourself doing what is right, but this moment of this temptation to self-pity begins to rise up inside of us. Self-pity robs us of perspective. Uh, It's an excessive, self-absorbed unhappiness over our own trouble, over our own suffering. It makes us doubt the care for those around us, and it tempts us to even question whether or not God knows us or sees us or hears us at all. Lord, do you care, is what Martha says. And I wonder if we all haven't been there. Lord, do you care? Do you see? So this morning, in a a moment, we're going to consider Jesus' ministry when he rescues Martha from self-pity and restores her to joy and perspective. Uh, Before we walk through the passage itself, uh, let's think about where this episode appears in the Gospel of Luke. We've been thinking uh, about John 17 the last uh, several um, Sundays, so uh, just a little warm-up in the Gospel of Luke. Here, uh, this story takes place in a larger journey. This is the part of Luke's Gospel where Jesus has just set his face uh, to go to Jerusalem. Uh, Luke 9.51 says, when the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. So uh, this passage happens in the midst of Jesus's journeying toward Jerusalem. And we know, and Jesus knows in the gospel of Luke, what's going to happen to him when he appears in Jerusalem. This is the journey as Jesus is progressing along to his death on the cross. Here in this moment in Luke chapter 10, Uh, Jesus comes to the village of Bethany, about two miles from Jerusalem. So he's almost at the end of his journey. And here he's given hospitality by two sisters, Martha and Mary. And we know from the Gospel of Luke that Mary and Martha are the sisters of Lazarus. Jesus was close friends with these three. Now, just before our passage, the passage of Mary and Martha, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Here, Jesus is interacting with a lawyer, uh, someone who is an expert in the law, and the expert in the law had heard God's word, had heard God's law, but hearing hadn't turned into doing. Jesus tells him then the parable of the Good Samaritan, where ironically, a non-Jewish person, a Samaritan, is the one who acts in faith. It's interesting here then to kind of contrast this part of Luke 10. You've got a, a, a section that's emphasizing a true disciple is going to act. A true disciple is going to love with deeds. Uh, and in our passage, a true disciple also sits at the feet of Jesus, listens intently to his words. So interesting, the, the true disciple, the true disciple needs both of those. Uh, but we're going to focus on Martha and Mary. We're going to focus on this part. So, but don't, don't let, leave your mind. Keep in mind uh, that a disciple needs both action uh, and uh, devotion, sitting at the feet of Jesus, both hearing and doing both of those. But our, but our passage is focusing on the hearing. So let's see how Jesus confronts Martha's self-pity and redirects her uh, to what's most important. So first, uh, the three points are uh, up on the screen. First, the setting. Look at verses 38 and 39. This is the, the scene setting for the episode. 
While they were traveling, this is Jesus and his disciples. Interesting, the disciples are kind of in the background for the most of this little episode, but it's the whole group. While they were traveling, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. So notice here that Martha alone uh, is the one that welcomed Jesus into her home. Uh, Literally, the text says Martha received him. This suggests that Martha, being the older sister, uh, most likely owned the home and was thus the one to welcome Jesus and offer hospitality to both him and his disciples. So let's not forget, there's a whole group of people here who need feeding and and caring for uh, as they're shown hospitality. Um, So this clues us into the fact that other than Jesus, right, the disciples have kind of faded in the background, Martha is the main uh, character in the story. So this is really an interaction between Jesus and Martha. Now Mary, on the other hand, notice the setting. She is introduced as Martha's sister, uh, and Luke says that she sat at the feet of Jesus and was listening to what he had to say. The, the verb here implies that Mary took an initiatory role. She initiated this. She came uh, purposefully, purposefully sat at Jesus' feet. And then the, the next verb was listening. Uh, and the idea there is that this was a disposition. She was not doing that just once, but over and over and over. This is something Mary was doing uh, as a habit, as a lifestyle. This was her disposition. Now, This little uh, detail about characterizing uh, Mary as sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening as a disposition, this is really unique and it would be startling to the original readers of Luke. Why? Because Mary, a woman, is being depicted as an ideal disciple, one who follows Rabbi Jesus. In the first century, women were not allowed to be Talmudim or Uh, the follower of a rabbi. Here, the Gospel of Luke is highlighting the fact that Mary is acting like a disciple, acting like one who is dedicated to following a rabbi, and Jesus is not turning her away. Instead, is welcoming her. Now, uh, in contrast to the description of Mary, uh, how unique that would be, uh, Martha, her description for the cultural setting is very typical. She's serving This is what, in the ancient culture, a woman would be seen uh, to be expected to do. Uh, And she is serving in that role well. Uh, What's not expected is what Mary is doing at this point. So So this is the setting. You see these two different dispositions of the two sisters. So the next section is, uh, well, what happens next? How does the tension begin to rise? And that leads us to number two, the question. And I'll spend a lot more time here. Look at verse 40. So the scene is set. Hospitality is being being given to Jesus and his disciples. Mary and Martha are both there. They have chosen different rooms to be in, though. Mary's in the living room with Jesus. Martha is in the kitchen uh, trying to offer hospitality. Verse 40. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. And she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. Here in verse 40, we find the rising conflict or the tension in the story. While Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus as an eager disciple of Rabbi Jesus, Martha is is busy. She's, She's busy with her many tasks. 
the translation we read translates many tasks. The word translated as tasks is otherwise translated in the New Testament as serving. It's uh, diakonos. It's the word that we use in the New Testament for deacon. Martha's deaconing. She's in the kitchen uh, serving and doing good work. Uh, What I want to underline here is that Martha's actually not doing something wrong. She's doing something right. She's doing a service to those in her house, to Jesus and his disciples. She's offering hospitality. She's making dinner and attending to the details of serving tables. She's uh, deaconing, as, as it were. She's serving. But notice that in her service, Martha feels overstretched perhaps even overwhelmed by her task. She feels that she has the right to complain. Surely Mary should get in here and help me, right? She's being idle. But look at who Martha asks the question to. Notice that Martha asks her question or directs her question to Jesus. Lord, don't you care? Now, shouldn't she be asking, don't you care, Mary? Doesn't Mary care? But notice she, she inquires of Jesus, not Mary. That, that begins to tell you something about what's going on in Martha's heart. Martha has interpreted the situation that A, she's been abandoned, and, and B, it's, it, it, it's the Lord's fault. The Lord hasn't seen. Jesus needs to fix this. And, and Jesus needs to fix this by telling the person who's not helping me to get in here and help me out. Uh, I don't know how many times you have shown up to church early to set up the chairs and think, why isn't so-and-so here? I prayed Jesus would convict that person right now to get out of bed and come help me. Or, you know, somebody's sweeping up afterwards and everyone has left for lunch. And you think, well, why aren't those people here helping me, Lord? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. I'm in the kitchen (laughs) doing the dishes, thinking, Lord, why aren't they in here helping me? Let's look closely at two of these phrases. Martha says, uh, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me? I want to look at that phrase. And then to serve alone. Left me to serve alone. First, look at the the phrase left me. Uh, Martha felt abandoned. She was on her own. Martha was in the hot kitchen working hard to keep pots boiling without burning. She needed help for the task. She saw Mary doing nothing, as she perceived it, idly, uh, sitting in the living room listening to Jesus teach, and she felt abandoned. She felt all alone. And I'm sure in your service, I'm sure in your faithfulness, you have felt alone. There's no one else here with me. I'm sure we have all felt like that before, right? I'm I'm the only one here early setting up. I'm 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 the last one here still sweeping up the floor. I'm always the one that signs up for teaching the children. No one else ever helps. I'm always up serving in this way or that way. And I feel alone. I think we can resonate with Martha here, that sometimes service uh, is hard uh, because we feel alone. And and if we allow that alone feeling to to kind of grow inside of us, we're we're dangerously close to self-pity. It's hard to continue to serve when we feel like we're the only ones serving. We feel all 
alone. And I think all of us are tempted at one point or another to feel that kind of isolation. Warning, self-pity is lurking at the door. But, but Martha is not just alone. Look at that second phrase. She says to serve alone. She, she's, uh, she's been left to serve alone. Uh, here Martha specifically says she's been left to serve alone. Martha felt that she was left to do the entire job on her own. It's not just that Martha feels alone and abandoned, but more that she feels responsible for the entire task, for the entire job. All the work has been left for Martha, and it all depends on her. That's, that's another really uh, difficult warning sign of self-pity, when you start to feel like it all rests on me. I'm the only one that can do this. I'm the only one that is doing this. To feel the weight of both being alone and that you feel like the job is all on your shoulders, this, this is a dangerous moment. At this moment, uh, resentment might rise up within our hearts, right? Against those who aren't helping us. And, and notice how this then starts to like deconstruct the situation. If I start to feel resentment toward those who aren't helping me, I'm going to start pushing those people away. And of course they won't help me at that point. And I get more stuck in my aloneness. And I feel more responsible for the entire job because I'm the only one here doing it. Martha was distracted by her many tasks. The good task of service, the good work of deaconing became a distraction. Literally, the text says it pulled her away, pulled Martha away from the main thing, experiencing the presence of Jesus. Notice service, even good and necessary service, can pull you away can distract us from the most important thing, from receiving Jesus, receiving from Jesus. So, so Martha is questioning Jesus, don't, Lord, don't you care? She feels abandoned, uh, they left me, and she feels overwhelmed by perceiving the entirety of the work depends upon her to serve alone. Martha is suffering from self-pity, from self-pity. We don't talk about self-pity a lot. Um, I, I wonder if self-pity is kind of the sin beneath the sin. It, it's something that's really in the roots. It's down deep. Um, uh, Tim, Tim Keller argues that uh, sin can only grow in the soil of self-pity and a feeling of oddness, oddness. I am not getting my fair shake. I'm not getting my needs met. Um, I have a hard life. <laughs> Uh, I'm just smiling because I've thought about that so many times. Man, my life is so hard. People don't know. Uh, Keller goes on, God owes me. People owe me. I owe me. That's the heart attitude of oddness or entitlement. Self-pity is a kind of sweet poison, though. Um, It's attractive. It's habit-forming. I think self-pity, sometimes we we grasp onto it. Self-pity can be destructive for four reasons. Uh, want to warn us about self-pity. I guess I'm warning myself. This is a sermon I need to hear. First, self-pity leads to isolation. Self-pity leads to isolation. Self-pity almost immediately makes you feel cut off from the real world or from other people or from community. Self-pity leads you to think that no one else can understand you. 
No one knows what I've experienced. Nobody knows how I feel. You feel isolated. No one has suffered like you. Self-pity can lead to pushing people away, friends and colleagues, the very ones that might be able to help. Uh, So self-pity leads to isolation. Two, self-pity leads to self-absorption. Self-pity blinds us to the feelings and perspectives of others. When, When your life's narrative is all about how you have been wronged or about how you have been denied what you're owed, it's very hard to think about other people. It's actually very hard to see other people at that point. It's hard to see their pain. It's hard to see their perspective. Self-pity is not only isolating, but, it, but it's also self-absorbing. Uh, third, self-pity, I think, results often in resentment. Resentment, the, the, the feeling of being left alone in our work by ourselves leads to resenting others. Um, I've, I've used the illustration in my mind several times that for me, resentment is like one of the dash lights in my car going off. Um, it's a warning sign. When I begin to feel resentment, um, I know there's something wrong with the engine. I need to stop the car immediately. When I feel resentment, and I think resentment from self-pity comes in two forms. Resentment, of course, we've already touched on it, can come in the form of why aren't those people helping me? Right? They're playing a game at the dinner table and I'm doing the dishes. I resent the fun they're having. Right? And, and you know, my kids are smiling at me. They, they can t- detect that. They can know, man, dad's grumpy. Why is he grumpy? We were just having fun. Resentment. Resentment can, uh, can detach me from those people who could help. But resentment can also rise up in my heart against those people who I am serving. I, 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 I have to confess this. In, in years of you know, serving the church, serving the university, there are moments when I begin to resent my students. I shouldn't, I shouldn't admit this. This is horrible. But I want to be alone in my office all by myself with my books some of my best friends. And a student comes and knocks on my door, and I think, they're gonna rob me of my time. I don't have time to talk to that student. I have a poverty mentality when it comes to time. (laughs) Money doesn't bother me, but time bothers me. But but, But I see in my heart this subtle resentment beginning to grow toward the very people I love, toward the people I serve toward the people I'm called to. I don't know if you've ever felt that or experienced that. But it's a sign that something very wrong is happening inside my heart and my mind. That I resent those people that I should love and care for. And I think it's born of self-pity. A nurtured self-pity. The last point, finally, a fourth, uh, self-pity in the end is kind of habit-forming. I didn't know how else to describe this. What, here what I mean is, whereas first self-pity is painful and it's not desirable, after a while, self-pity becomes a habit. We begin to love it. Kind of like Gollum and the ring, my precious. You know, we, we kind of pet our self-pity. 
We, we kind of nurture it so it grows because it's a part of our identity. I'm always the one who's serving. I'm always the one who's suffering. In fact, suffering now is a part of my identity. It's kind of a martyr's complex. Have you ever been around somebody who has a martyr's complex? You can never encourage them. You can never care for them because they're like a black hole. Any encouragement or love or care is comes in and twisted around and the narrative is always, I'm suffering. Self-pity can be sweet and addicting. And it's dangerous. And I wonder if after a couple of years of COVID, a lot of us might be tempted toward self-pity. There's been a lot to deal with. There's been suffering, no doubt. But when we nurture that sense of self-pity, uh, yeah, we, we can get really lost. So in the end, self-pitying gives us a warped sense of reality. It robs us of our ability to make decisions, to heal, because self-pity actually keeps us always focused on our hurts. It delights in keeping us stuck in idle introspection. It feeds our minds with negativity. We end up not seeing ourselves as we really are. We question those who love us and care for us even questioning God's care. Lord, do you care? Do you see? I think self-pity leads to that kind of question. In the uh, quotation section of the beginning of, uh, of the bulletin there, there's a, there's a quotation from uh, John Piper. In his book, Desiring God, uh, John Piper draws a helpful comparison between boasting and self-pity, two things we probably wouldn't put together. Uh, but helpfully, he says, boasting is the response of pride to success, but self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. We can be proud of our suffering. Boasting says, I deserve admiration because I have achieved so much. Self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I've suffered so much. Martyr. Uh, boasting sounds self-sufficient, but self-pity sounds self-sacrificing. Uh, Piper says, the reason self-pity does not look like pride is because it appears to be needy. But the need arises from a wounded ego. It doesn't come from a sense of unworthiness, but from a sense of unrecognized worthiness. Martha, I'm worthy. Look at my service. Why am I not being recognized? Martha's self-pity causes her to question whether or not Jesus saw her or cared for her. It caused her ultimately to question God's goodness. So how did Jesus answer Martha? What's the fix? What's, what's the fix to this problem? So third, third, let's look at Jesus' response. Look at verses 41 and 42, the very last part of the section or of the passage. Uh, the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. And, and by the way, when, when Jesus says Martha, Martha, it's not a rebuke. It's, it's actually the repetition there is, um, is compassion. It's Jesus showing compassion to Martha. Martha, Martha, you are worried. Actually, the word there is anxious, anxiety. Oh, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and upset about many things. But one thing is necessary. Get the contrast. You're worried about many things. I'm sorry, I should just read the passage, but things come to mind. Uh, are you the kind of person who stays up at night worrying about things? I have gotten 
old enough that it's hard to sleep now, and so I get to sleep just fine, but I wake up in the middle of the night, usually to go to the bathroom, but anyway. Uh, but, but I can't go back to sleep. And it's because my mind, it's, it's like somebody is conspiring against me so I don't sleep. I, just a flood of thoughts come into my mind. And I start worrying about, you know, did I, did I do the laundry? Did I fold my socks? Or, you know, I've got a test coming up. It doesn't matter what it is, but I just start worrying. And, and after 15 minutes, I feel completely exhausted and overwhelmed. Why? Because of many many worries. And there's something about in the middle of the night where I can't like rationally think. Just don't think about it right now. Just go to sleep. Anyway, I'm, I'm sympathetic as Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried, you're anxious and upset about many things. But one thing is necessary. Notice the contrast. Many things worry you, but there's only one thing that matters. There's only one thing that you need to focus on. But one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken from her. That's not a rebuke necessarily of Martha. Uh, it's, it's really an invitation to Martha. Be my disciple just like Mary is. Don't allow yourself to be overwhelmed with all this anxiety. Here I think Mary uh, has chosen the right thing, but Martha, because of self-pity, has been blinded. Uh, Jesus actually needs to help Martha see how stuck she is. Jesus responds to her self-pity by helping Martha see how stuck she is. Jesus says, Martha, you are anxious about many things. And in the present, Martha is distracted and discouraged and in resentment over serving alone. She's languishing in self-pity. She needs to see that, that she's stuck. Um, if depression is regret over things, that we cannot control, that have happened in the past, then I think anxiety is concern over things we cannot control in the future. And I think Martha uh, is caught in her anxiety, like many of us, worried about things in the future that we cannot control. Our job, parenting, how are our kids going to grow? Money, uh, career, family, pandemic, Violence around the world. Uh, you only need to scroll through Facebook to find something to be anxious about. They should rename it Anxious Book instead of Facebook. Uh, so many things that we cannot control that we worry about and we obsess over them. And like me, we lose sleep over them and we make ourselves sick. Jesus gently corrects Martha. He first helps her see something about herself. She's stuck. Notice that Jesus doesn't denigrate her service. Dishes, is a, dishes need to be done. Hospitality is a good thing. It's how you go about it. It's what disposition you have toward the service. Martha's struggling with self-pity, and Jesus helps her see she's stuck. But not only that, Jesus also shows Martha the way out. Remember, uh, uh, rather than rebuking Mary, right? Jesus doesn't do that. Uh, Jesus helps Martha see that Mary has chosen the right thing. That, that though Martha is worried about many things, uh, Mary has chosen the one thing, the most important thing, the primary thing, the foundational thing that allows Martha then to go on and serve. The thing that Mary has chosen is to sit at the feet of Jesus, the one thing that is necessary, the one thing Martha needs, the one thing you and me 
we need is to sit at the feet of Jesus, to listen to his words. This can be hard because it means surrender. It means you're not in control. It actually means you need to stop too. In our culture and society, stopping is not a good thing. I walk around campus and I hear our students asking each other, how's it going? How are you today? The, the response always, ooh, I'm busy. I'm busy. No one ever says, oh, I'm doing nothing. I'm bored. No, no. Our identity is like built in the idea of being busy. I'm always doing something. And to sit at the feet of Jesus and to stop and listen means we've got to pause. We have to intentionally set aside stuff we know needs to be done. This is hard. I can't sit at the dinner table and play a game with my family because I see the dishes staring at me. And they need to be done. But I have to pause. Wait, the dishes will be there. I need to listen to the words of Jesus. If we were to hear the words of Jesus, this is what we would hear. We heard this passage earlier in the service from Luke, uh, but this is the same passage, the parallel passage from Matthew. Jesus says this. Here's what we would hear if we would slow down and listen. And why do you worry? Why are you anxious about clothes? Observe how the wild flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Let that sink in. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. In the middle of the night, when you're having a hard time sleeping because you're worried about what comes next, know that the heavenly Father, he knows what you need. He made you. He sees you. And he knows what you need. The truth is that your heavenly father knows better what you need than you do. That's the rescue here. We think we know what we need. I need a bigger paycheck. No, I don't. I pay more taxes on that. No, I need something else. You follow what I'm saying? I mean, the Lord knows what we need. I need to trust him. Self-pity often comes from thinking we deserve something when we don't get it. But often we don't even know what we need. But the father knows what we really need. Martha, I might say to you all, Martha's out there. Martha, Jesus knows what you need. He's already giving it to you. In fact, you already have it. Jesus not only teaches that he knows what you need, but Jesus demonstrates this in his own forsakenness and his death. Jesus has taken Martha's abandonment Jesus has taken Martha's isolation and he's taken it upon himself. Remember that this part of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is on a journey. He's in the penultimate moment. He's almost in Jerusalem where he will experience a moment where he cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And here in Christ's abandonment, we are made sons and daughters. In Christ's isolation, we are given community. 
it, it can't be a good sermon if I don't quote from John Calvin. So therefore, John Calvin says this. He says, it follows that every good thing we could ever think or desire is to only be found in this Jesus Christ alone. For he was sold to buy us back, captive to deliver us, condemned to absolve us. He was made a curse for our blessing, sin offering for our righteousness. He died for our life so that by him fury is made gentle, wrath appeased, darkness turned into light, fear reassured, debt canceled, sadness made merry, division united, rebellion subjected, damnation damned, the abyss sunk into the abyss, hell transfixed, death died, mortality made immortal. This is what Jesus does. This is his answer. Lord, do you care? Peter says in 1 Peter, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And in Christ's death, in his death and resurrection, he has demonstrated his great care. He has demonstrated that he sees. He has demonstrated that he knows. And he has given you what you need. Don't allow self-pity to rob what you already have in Christ. Let's look to him in prayer now. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given to us what we desperately need. Save us, Lord, please, from the sweet poison of self-pity. Lord, in a moment when there has been a lot of loss, in a moment when there has been um, anxiety and stress throughout our culture, throughout our world, throughout a pandemic, Lord, we, we humbly come to you and we confess. We, we are tempted at so many moments to, uh, to wallow in our own self-pity, even to the point that we, we question your goodness. Oh, Lord, may we see a beautiful Jesus. May we see how you have provided for us in Christ. Help us, Lord God. Um, extinguish the flame of our anxieties and restore us, Lord. Help us to see that the one thing to choose is to sit at the feet of Christ, to receive from you, Lord God, and in that strength serve uh, and, and live faithfully. Lord, help us. Save us, we pray. In Jesus' name.